I think that if people create content that helps their communities understand how to use some of these technologies for their own benefit um, and how to bootstrap their own economic success, that can be super helpful. And that's what we're trying to do with blockchain. The more people that get involved, the more people that join these communities, um, the more we can start to empower people financially and practically. And until blockchain, it was nearly impossible for a person in a basement to start their own currency. Now that's possible. Now with blockchain, it's possible for someone growing up in a village, uh, as long as they have some Wi-Fi access or access to a smartphone, to have an identity and a reputation, even if there aren't government services available to them, even if there aren't banking services available to them. So I think this is pretty transformative. And I think anything you can do to help the news reach more people um, about transformations and changes that are happening to our world that they could get on board with and that they could benefit from, I think that's incredibly valuable. Hey everyone, welcome to the Futures Collective podcast. We believe in the sentiment that you are the reflection of the people you spend the most time with. So this podcast aims to have deep discussions with incredible young leaders, entrepreneurs, activists, artists, and everything in between from around the world. We talk through their journeys and break down their key skills and experiences that have helped get them to where they are, and hopefully empower you on your journey towards finding true success and fulfillment in life. My name is Akil Kamal, and I'm the founder of Futures Collective. And today, my guest is Amanda Gutterman, who was just talking about how blockchain technology and producing the right content can help create social change. Amanda is the Chief Marketing Officer at Consensus, which is essentially a global community of technologists and entrepreneurs building the Ethereum ecosystem. For those that don't know what Ethereum or blockchain is, we go through that in this discussion. And I could tell from the start that Amanda is truly passionate about blockchain and Ethereum in particular, um, and how they can contribute to helping create a better world. Amanda has been named on the Forbes 30 and 30 list in 2016 for digital media platform she co-founded Courseland, which ultimately launched her into the technology world. Amanda's perspectives are absolutely interesting, and her experience through working with people like Ariana Huffington really comes through in this talk. Um, I'm keen to dive in. Please let me know what you think by leaving a review on whatever podcasting app you use or just getting in touch with us. So let's get into it. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me on this podcast, Amanda. I, I'm really looking forward to the discussion we're going to have. Me too. Bring it on. <laughs> awesome. So why don't we start off and set a bit of context uh, for everyone listening in to get a bit of an idea uh, of who you are and um, the work that you're doing currently. So yeah, why don't you talk us through what your role is and what you're doing at the moment? Sure. So um, I'm Chief Marketing Officer at a company called Consensus, which mm. is one of the largest companies building blockchain technology. Um, Consensus is about a thousand people right now. We're in 28 countries. We work on something like 50 different projects around the world, sometimes with governments, sometimes with enterprises, sometimes we're building our own applications, sometimes we're investing, and it's all concentrated, concentrated around the blockchain ecosystem, particularly the Ethereum blockchain. And we can go into that a little bit more. So my role as chief marketing officer is to explain what this technology does, what it means for people to different audiences, and to 
help them get access to the tools that they need in order to become more efficient and effective and utilize the technology well. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds pretty incredible. And I think blockchain is something um, a lot of people don't know much about, but are very excited about. So it'll be really interesting to explore that a bit more as we go through this chat. But now that we know a bit about what you do, uh, I think what's really interesting is always exploring um, the pathway that got you here. So starting out just with, yeah, basically where you grew up and I guess what your childhood environment was like. Sure. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and then um, I moved to New York for college. I went to Columbia University, and I stayed in New York ever since. I've been in New York for about 10 years now, and one interesting kind of story that I think about a lot is that when I was young, Facebook was really new, and all the kids were excited about it, and I remember the the Wi-Fi at our school actually banned Facebook, so you couldn't get onto it at school. And then, ironically, many years later, when I became um, a marketer, when I went into digital media, Facebook was the name of the game professionally. And understanding yeah. how Facebook works was, was just huge to being good at your job. So it's so funny to watch something go from being considered a meaningless distraction to be, becoming the fundament of a lot of people's livelihoods. Uh, so watching that change, I tend to, um, I learned a lot from that. I tend to be, you know, suspicious of censorship and closing things down and very excited about the technologies and platforms that people are using. You know, if I see if I see people actually really using a technology, then there's something to watch there. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, about the censorship of something like Facebook when it was pretty new when you were in, in school. And for me, you know, being about a year out of high school, I've noticed that it, it hasn't much changed because um, at least in Australia and the school that I was growing up on our school Wi-Fi network, um, sites, social media sites like Facebook and Instagram were actually blocked. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting because that plays such an important part of um, business and marketing in all of these massive industries um, as well that are very prominent in our world. But education has been a bit slow to adapt to that <laughs> going forward. I agree. And and the, the flip side is relevant too. I mean, there's something to be said for the, the decision-making process and not wanting to have distractions. I mean, yeah. whereas a lot of these platforms are really interesting professionally and will end up becoming the foundation for a lot of young folks' careers. On the flip side, if you think about the incentives of these platforms, you know, they don't yeah. care if you sleep, they don't care if you eat, they don't care if you read. Netflix, yeah. their CEO even said, and I think this is hilarious, that he considers his main competitor asleep. Um, <laughs> and so there's something to be said for the fact that these platforms um, don't necessarily care about educating you. They care about, you know, bringing, bringing home the bacon for their shareholders. So that's, that's a little hedge against my pro-social media attitude. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always important to have that balanced perspective. And it's something that I do want to delve into just a bit later on about, you know, with so much out there, but how we can actually um, produce and consume media a bit more consciously. Um, but I think still looking at your your upbringing and growing up through the school system that you had, um, did you notice the skills that you possess today uh, being reflected in yourself very early on? Are there any any moments that you might be able to um, 
yeah, pick up on that sort of hinted towards your skill set being suited to what you're doing today? Sure. I mean, I've always been very interested in language and how language moves through groups of people. Um, mm. I, I gave the salutorian address when I graduated from uh, high school. Um, I think I did a pretty funny job of it. I had a I had a yeah. lot of fun making it, but I've, I've always been kind of a word person and I always was growing up. Um, I've always been interested in how people work. And lately, going into the technology space, I've been become more interested in how stuff works. Um, but how, how people work and how language works has always been, you know, a huge, a huge interest for me. And what I'm really good at, and what I was then and still am good at now, is taking complicated concepts and synthesizing them and making them simple. And yeah. it's that kind of skill it's not like being a, it's not like knowing what your career is going to be. It's not like knowing that you want to be, um, you know, an electrician or knowing that you want to be a computer programmer or knowing that you want to be a writer. It's more yeah. like, what is your mind really good at and what does it enjoy doing? What feels like play instead of work? And that's always been the same thing for me, no matter what I apply it to. Yeah. And I just spoke to someone yesterday as well, who was saying that their best advice for someone who wants to find out you know, what sort of work would be most fulfilling for them is to just reflect on what they do in their daily life and take note of everything that makes them happy um, and look at, you know, patterns in what those are and whether there are any themes along the way. And I think that's very much the same, um, similar to what you're saying is to really reflect on, you know, the things that you feel like you're good at doing and you, you enjoy doing as a person and let that guide guide the way rather than the career itself and what you, what you might end up doing. I agree. And also thinking about what makes you different? What makes you different from the people around you? Do you have a different way of thinking about certain types of issues? Are you approaching are you approaching numbers differently? Are you approaching words differently? Are you approaching visual art differently? Are you approaching food differently? Yeah, definitely. And um Moving on into university, um, what were you starting to notice as, you know, your unique approach? And I think you kind of touched on it there, but I'm sure as you grow older as well, those things start to become a bit more clear. Yeah, so so I went to a wonderful university. I was so lucky. I went to Columbia and had a, a very classic liberal arts education that not a lot of people get today. And I think in the future, um, possibly yeah. fewer people will get. And maybe it's not for everyone, but it really benefited me in lots of ways. I read the classics, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Hobbes, yeah. Locke, Rousseau, you name it. Um, so what that, was your area of focus, Amanda? So I studied English literature. I also studied some French, some statistics. Um, statistics has always been interesting to me because it's a, it's a mush of math and people. So it's a bunch of data about people through the lens of math. It's another way to understand human beings. So that was really interesting. Dabbled with anthropology. I kind of tried everything I could. Um, and one thing I found is, you know, academia is such a specific path and it's so full of jargon sometimes. And mm. there are whole types of language that are invented in order to classify people as the folks that have had this classic academic training or the folks that haven't. And yeah. I, always, I always found that simplicity was the best solution. And there's mm. nothing better than just taking something complicated and making it simple, using the only the words you need to, 
um, trying to really convey understanding and meaning. And so um, I, I, I really thought about going into academia, but I felt like my my real passion and where I could add the most value was elsewhere and would be out in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's great to hear. Um, it's something that I'm starting to consider as well, whether, you know, I want to go into that formal pathway um, and get into academia, whether I want to um, continue and really just uh, get going on my own initiatives and solutions that seem to really resonate with me um, at the moment quite a lot. So yeah, I think it's something that people, you know, naturally as they go through the process will will start to figure out. Um, but also, yeah, were there um, were there any social pressures um, on you, whether it be, you know, just at the time um, having pressures to do something specific or, you know, pressures from people that you knew at all? Um, was there anything like that at all in your, in your life growing up? Sure. So I think in college, especially at Columbia, there's a there's a big funnel into the management consult consulting firms, mm. the McKinsey and the Accentures of the world, and there's a big funnel into Wall Street, and then there are people going into academia, people going into journalism, and what I didn't see as yeah. much of, and maybe it's now it's been a while, um, I didn't see people going into startups, I didn't see people becoming entrepreneurs as frequently, um, and so. I guess no one ever sat me down and said becoming an entrepreneur or working at a startup or leading a startup is a possible path for you. Um, it just wasn't something I'd considered. And I wish I'd considered that earlier. That, that could have been interesting. Um, yeah. Just either go through, this, um, go through this very set system of academia or go through this very set system of media or this very set system of banking and finance. And there was something that didn't quite appeal about any of those. And I couldn't figure out exactly what it was. And I think for the generation younger than me, I think things have totally changed in a, in a very short time. I think that yeah. a lot of younger people really see themselves as a startup and imagine everything they do as an entrepreneurial activity. And I yeah. think that's really beautiful. And I hope that the, um, I hope that our educational institutions can support that and nurture it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really great um, that you had the self-awareness to realize your own pathway, um, even though it might have been different to the norm um, of, you know, growing up through Columbia at the time. So that, yeah, that's really great to hear. And that's a, a, a testament to you as well. And I think moving on into a bit more about the work that you're doing, uh, and this is where it's it will really start to get very exciting. Um, I just want to have a look at as well, the, the first sort of jobs that you had, what were some of them, Amanda? And uh, what were, yeah, your biggest takeaways probably from those early jobs? Yeah, so so one of my first jobs, uh, and I was very lucky to be able to get this, was I, I was an intern at The New Yorker. Do you know The New Yorker magazine? Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorites. <laughs> ah, so I was an intern there and I worked on all kinds of things. But one thing I encountered there was their um, their attempt to digitize their archive. Um, and maybe this sounds dry, but if you wanted to look up an old New Yorker article, you had to pull up a PDF from their website and it wasn't searchable and it was very difficult to access the old issues. Now, of course, you can. And, you know, their, their yeah. digitization went, you know, incredibly well. Very smart people on that project. But as they were starting to think about this, I, I, saw, I saw how they were approaching it. And I realized that if I wanted to be a word person, I would have to become a technology person. 
Yeah. And that led me on a path that I've been on ever since that you can't just be a pure this or a pure that in mm. order to kind of do the thing I do best. I would need to learn about technology really deeply. Yeah, absolutely. And how did your experience through your internship um, as well then translate into your next jobs or even um, your first company that you started? Yeah, so after after that and right after I graduated, I started working at the Huffington Post. And I, mm. I was very fortunate. I got to work closely um, at times with Ariana Huffington, who is the the founder of Huffington Post. And Huffington Post is a really uh, amazing institution in that it paved the way for the news aggregation business. It wasn't the the very first. Um, yeah. I think the very first might have even been the the Drudge Report, but it was one. It, it really opened up the field of news aggregation, and later it opened up the field of um, you know, digital reporting, and it really, um, it really changed the game for digital media. Uh, then I, I worked with her on um, a bit on her book Thrive, on the marketing around that. I worked yeah. on the contributor network, um, which is really exciting. A, a huge portion of our um, our content when I was working there came from contributors who were writing. They were writing for free uh, because yeah. they just wanted to write on the platform. And that was so interesting to see people willing to give away their content for free because they wanted this platform to be heard. Um, and you see that everywhere, right? That's Facebook, that's, um, that's Instagram, you know, that, that's every major platform. It's yeah. people just wanting to share. And that we'll is see on, med- on Medium as well at the moment. Yeah, of course, on Medium. And <clears throat> that inspired me, but it also made me a little bit concerned that things were getting harder for people that wanted to be digital creators, that it was going yeah. to be hard for them to monetize um, in a world where other people are giving it away for free. And, and that, that really struck me, right? So what the internet did to communications is that it democratized them. It made yeah. it so much easier to communicate. It really brought down the barrier to entry to being able to share a message, whether it's text, whether it's video, whether it's an image. Um, but what it didn't do was retain the value glued to that kind of content. So the value became unglued from the communication. And we can get to this later, but one thing that blockchain does is it tries to kind of restore that balance. It has the potential to be used to restore that balance. Um, but this is still pre pre my learning about blockchain. Uh, so I, I left HuffPost and I co-founded a company called Slant. What we did yeah. is we allowed anyone to, um, to create a piece of content we optimize that piece of content for distribution using automated and human methods. Then we published it on our site. We served ads across the site, and we gave the creators a 70% revenue share on the advertising money that they brought in. So they were getting paid for their work. We were getting paid a bit for their work. Um, we were monetizing through ads, and we were mostly distributing on social media. So we ended yeah. up creating a lot of educational materials for college students, for journalism students to learn about how to build up their followings and how to get traffic to content online, which is content marketing. Mm. And um, that started really interesting me. The problem is that that's a micropayment-based model. Um, Sometimes you end up splitting the dollar or even splitting the cent. And in the world we live in right now, in order to make payments, you need to pay some kind of third-party processor some kind of middleman that takes a cut. 
And that makes a lot of micropayment-based business models like the one we had with Slant not really work. Um, And so when I discovered blockchain for the first time, it was through friends I'd met in the entrepreneur space. Um, And they said, you know, this could solve your problem. This could open up all kinds of different models for, for media, for all kinds of different industries that didn't actually make sense before, but that do make sense logically. And that inspired me so much. I, I fell down the rabbit hole and just kept learning more and more about it. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's great to hear as well that your curiosity um, really took over and allowed you to, you know, it's, it's not a lot of the time that we seem interested in something and then go the step further to um, delve into it a bit more, learn more about it, and then ultimately work very closely with whatever it is we were interested by. And I want to look back at something you said earlier on, which is about, um, you know, particularly with social media and a lot of the the news and access to information and content that we have today, um, some stuff that we should be mindful of. And uh, I'm really interested to know about how, particularly as, as young people today who are so um, saturated by media around us, how we can be more conscious in the way we consume and produce content, particularly with how the trends in media is making everything really accessible. Yeah, so everything in the blockchain world comes back to incentives and incentive systems. Uh, what do I mean by incentives? I mean, who benefits from you doing something? So when you share a piece of content, when you produce a piece of content, what kinds of things are you giving up? Are you giving up your data? Are you giving up the rights to that content? Are you um, are you allowing that company to monetize your data and that content on their behalf for their shareholders? Are they cutting you into that or are they locking you out of that value flow? And I think it's healthy to participate in media environments where you get to participate financially if there is a financial nature to it and that there is something a little strange to me about creating all this content, consuming all this content, and never getting to participate in that value flow. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, really looking at, you know, the impact that blockchain's having on industries. Um, yeah, essentially, what what is, there's so much, you know, there's so much going on around blockchain. Uh, or there is obviously as well a lot of volatility in, in terms of the, co- the coins that are out there at the moment. A lot of speculation and misinformation around the technology there is. Um, what's the best way for young people to learn about blockchain at the moment? And um, yeah, what are some, you've already given us some great insights, but what's the best way to look at it? So some of the best resources, I would recommend signing up for the Consensus email newsletter. It's really thorough. Um, Consensus is spelled C-O-N-S-E-N-S-Y-S, not S-U-S. So definitely sign up for that. It's on the website. Also, um, Laura Shin's podcast, Unchained, is an incredible resource. Um, she, she keeps things very simple. She interviews amazing people. I know you probably like podcasts because you're already listening to a podcast. <laughs> so, so I'd recommend that. Um, don't let anyone overcomplicate things. Blockchain systems are a certain type of technology that's uh, decentralized, that's peer-to-peer, that works using something called smart contracts, which are basically pieces of code that self-execute. People have built really interesting money systems using them. People have built really interesting token and incentivization systems using them that sometimes feed into their business models. Um, There's a lot to unpack and to absorb 
But at the end of the day, I think that everyone's going to end up using this technology. They might not know exactly how it works, but they will know what it does. And I think that's really important, getting to the core of what it does. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And um, what what's the the main sort of what's what got you so excited about Ethereum as opposed to the other, you know, really big um, aspects of blockchain at the moment, which revolve around, you know, Bitcoin, um, Litecoin, Ripple, those sort of stuff. What got you really excited about Ethereum in particular? Yeah, so I think when most people talk about blockchain, they don't know this, but they're referring to Ethereum. When you hear about all these different properties, they're usually properties of Ethereum. Um, Bitcoin is a great example of a blockchain. It was the first blockchain. It was created as an experiment in monetary theory to see whether um, to see whether they could create an online-only currency that's decentralized, that's peer-to-peer, that's immutable, um, that that's safe. And they did. And it's super interesting because um, it's a currency that works, that isn't controlled by any government, that isn't controlled by any group of human beings making opaque decisions in a room. It's governed autonomously um, and it's governed through its stakeholders and miners by a transparent system that's visible to everyone. And that was a really important uh, first step. Later, um, when people wanted to build more sophisticated applications using the Bitcoin blockchain, it was difficult to do that because that wasn't what the Bitcoin blockchain was built for. So um, a really young guy, he was 19 at the time, called Vitalik Buterin, came up with the idea, maybe maybe instead of trying to fit uh, a square peg into a round hole, making the Bitcoin blockchain do things it wasn't designed for, let's make a blockchain that's actually an application platform that you can use to build all kinds of different tools and apps using the software instead of just having a money system. So everything from um, identity to to land ownership to basically anything you could write a computer program for, you can write onto the Ethereum blockchain. And when I talk about micropayments for content or something like tokenizing carbon credits uh, to reward companies for reducing emissions, all those things work on Ethereum. Mm. Um, so to me, Bitcoin is a great app. Bitcoin is kind of like email. If, if blockchain is the internet, Bitcoin is like email. But yeah. um, Ethereum is like that internet. It's like, it's like the app store and Bitcoin is like the app. And it's a great I like, Yeah, I love that analogy. I really do. I love that analogy so much. Um, I think, yeah, really seeing um, Ethereum as it is, which is essentially that, the, the anchor that holds, um, you know, everything, everything else that would surround blockchain. Um, absolutely. And, um, the other yeah. Thing, just to, just as quickly, I mean, the other really interesting thing about Ethereum, even more interesting to me than something like the price of the associated token, which is ether is mm. the fact that there's so much development going on on the Ethereum blockchain and that developers and engineers are working on building applications on this blockchain more than any other blockchain. Ethereum has 30 times the size of the developer community of the next largest blockchain. And I really think that the more applications that are built, the more actual technical talent that's working on this blockchain, the further it's going to go. And that's what really shows the strength of the community 
that, that they are choosing to build all these projects on it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I want to get really practical here and look at, you know, you talked about all these applications. Are there any particular applications that come to mind that either are being worked on or can be worked on in the near future that can really have a, a pretty substantial impact um, on our daily lives, um, as well as in particular, I think the workforce of the future, which a lot of young people are concerned about? Yeah, so I think um, since we've been talking about digital media, the best um, application to talk about is CIVIL, um, C-I-V-I-L. It is kind of bringing to fruition some of the inklings I first had with Slant. And um, it is a token-based journalism platform that remunerates creators, that remunerates journalists. We're hoping that it helps to reinvigorate local journalism. We're hoping to see it create a content ecosystem where people are actually paid for their work. And in a, a generation that's so entrepreneurial and people want to um, monetize themselves and monetize their following and monetize um, themselves like a business, I think that's going to be essential if they care about content and also on the consumer side. There's another project um, called Ujo, U-J-O, um, that's live and it helps artists connect directly with fans by actually releasing their music on the Ethereum blockchain. So you can go to Ujo and you can actually download albums um, from the Ethereum blockchain. And instead of having all these middlemen and instead of having all of these interfaces that separate the creators from their communities, you can really bring those flush against each other and you don't need all of those middle layers. And that's really great for for new artists and people that uh, are just starting out. And it's also great for for folks that are very well-known and accomplished to help them actually reap the fruits of their success. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, those are some really great examples and it will be really exciting to see, you know, how they develop and how other, other applications as well develop over time. Uh, and, you know, I always really like to tie things um, back into aspects around social change because a lot of my listeners are generally really interested and, and want to make an impact in that area and so in particular with with content and with um blockchain i guess with content first how might young people make an impact through content whether that be um yeah consuming or producing i think that if people create content that helps their communities understand how to use some of these technologies for their own benefit Mm. um how to bootstrap their own economic success that can be super helpful. And that's what we're trying to do with blockchain. The more people that get involved, the more people that join these communities, um, the more we can start to empower people financially and practically. And until blockchain, it was nearly impossible for a person in a basement to start their own currency. Now that's possible. Now with blockchain, it's possible for someone growing up in a village as long as they have some Wi-Fi access or access to a smartphone to have an identity and a reputation, even if there aren't government services available to them, even if there aren't banking services available to them. Mm. So I think this is pretty transformative. And I think anything you can do to help the news reach more people um, about transformations and changes that are happening to our world that they could get on board with and that they could benefit from, I think that's incredibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as, you know, someone right now who is really interested in 
um, helping education make that change and make that shift towards something that is more reflective of what we need going forward um, because of the transformations that are happening in our world. I think something, you know, content that makes a content that is more accessible, but also a lot more clear about, um, you know, where our, our world is headed and how these technologies might influence us um, can make a huge difference in, in helping people advocate for sort of changes in education, for example, but also implementing changes uh, and figuring out where to start. So um, that's just, yeah, one one example as, as to see how I, I, as how I see that impacting us. Um, but I'm sure there's, yeah, so many more. I totally agree. And I, I think, I mean, right now, the youngest generation feels accurately like it has its finger on the pulse of what the new technology is. But technology is going to move faster and faster. That's the way it works. And also that generation is going to age. And the challenge is, how do you keep up? How do you make sure you're able to keep up? And if you can create content, if you can create educational programs that enable people to keep up and to stay empowered and to stay on, on top of technology and to use it for their benefit instead of being used by it or being productized by it, then I think that's massively beneficial. I mean, personally, I think we're giving away too much data. I think, um, I think there are some players in the game that are on a mission to collect all the data in the world under their roof put it all in one yeah. place. And if you have all the data in the world, what laws can really restrain you? What can you not do? Um, I, I think we're moving toward that. And I think it's inevitable that we do turn so many parts of life and so many business processes into data yeah. and that we're able to model reality. But I think the only way we can really be comfortable with that, with that kind of inevitability, is if people themselves are owning that data and if it's up to them who to share it with, rather than up to some kind of centralized institution making those decisions on their behalf. And I think there needs to be a user revolution to say, we want our data, we insist on owning it ourselves, and we insist on monetizing it on our own behalf, instead of having it monetized by other people. Because I think with the rise of automation, with the rise of AI, machine learning, one of the value propositions of being human is owning the data that's generated by you. Mm. And I think that's going to become really clear in the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't, I hadn't looked at, um, you know, the value of um, the, the data that we own in the context of um, the influence of automation, AI, and all of those technologies that are going to really be revolutionizing the way that we live and the way that we work. Um, so yeah, that's, it's great to get that perspective. And <clears throat> I think just in, in finishing up here, Amanda, sorry, <clears throat> I just wanted to know, yeah, what's, what's next for you? What is, um, your, what are your goals? What's your vision going forward? Um, yeah, it's, it's always interesting to hear. So I've always wanted to write a book. And I'm going to commit to doing that on this podcast, and maybe that'll help me stick to it. Um, but I've started to write um, a book that's aimed at um, millennials and even younger about how to do business in a world that's decentralizing and changing really fast. Mm. Um, so that's one thing I'm working on. I've been starting to do more speaking. 
Um, starting to meet a lot of people around the world that are interested in this technology. And I'm so lucky that I've been in kind of the right place at the right time to get to be the person to bring this across to lots of people. Yeah. So I want to keep doing that. And I want to keep growing consensus and doing everything I can for the Ethereum community because I really believe in this technology and its ability to create positive social change and economic empowerment. And whatever I can do with my skill set to help make that happen, I'm going to do. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's incredible to hear, you know, how clear you are on your purpose and your commitment to making sure that you act on it and act on your passions. Uh, and it's, you know, really inspiring to hear. And I'm sure that everyone listening in, um, you know, they either learnt some something new and something um, positive about what blockchain and what uh, Ethereum has to offer, as well as, you know, um, anything practical that they would have picked up through your hearing about your journey. So I really appreciated you coming on. Um, and um, yeah, I'm sure people had a lot to take away. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Feel free to reach out anytime. Not a problem. Thank you so much. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening in. I do want to ask you to please leave a review for this podcast. Um, one, it really helps with being more visible on people's feeds and whatever podcasting apps they use so more people can benefit from the discussions we have. And also, let me know what you think, like whether the stuff that we talk about is actually helping you and if there's any other topics you want to hear about or any sort of people you want to hear from. Thanks for listening and hope you guys have a good week ahead.